AJ, how do you feel about your beloved University of Michigan Wolverines being accused of stealing signs? Well, you know, when you're at the top, the haters show themselves. So here we are. It's lonely at the top. Yeah, everyone's trying to knock you off the mountaintop, but you know, that it's been a lesson in um, how fandom lets you justify any number of things. So it's been interesting to watch the discussion play out for sure. There you go. Well, one place that's not lonely is the cyberspace conflict around Israel and Gaza, which we're going to get into today. We also have Mike Caulfield, University of Washington researcher, coming on the show to talk about how Twitter has changed in the aftermath of Elon Musk's acquisition of the platform and how that's affected the flow of information related to the conflict between Israel and Hamas. That's up next on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, host of Safe Mode. I'm joined today by CyberScoop reporter AJ Vicens. Thanks for coming on the show, AJ. How you doing? Good, man. So this week you've been reporting on actions in cyberspace related to the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. We've seen an uptick in cyber operations linked to that conflict. What's going on? Yeah, so if we zoom out a little bit, um, sort of from the moment that Hamas launched its attack on Israel, we've seen just a flurry of pre-existing and new entities, personas, fronts, whatever you want to call them online, claim various things such as DDoS attacks or um, theft of data or penetration of industrial control systems, those kinds of things. The majority of these claims are to be treated with kind of the biggest grain of salt you can carry because, uh, you know, part of this whole thing is trying to get attention and trying to look like you're having an effect when really you're not. But it's it's also like we shouldn't minimize what's happening. I mean, th this is partially sort of psychological terror in some ways. I mean, it's trying to convince people that maybe this mysterious hacking group is in your water system or um, they have access to your medical records, those kinds of things. And we have seen real examples of that in the past. So it's a real confusing sort of space at the moment. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen this since the start of the conflict. And you know, I think one of the, the interesting ones to begin with was you know, somebody hacked uh, one of the apps that's popular among Israelis to warn about rocket strikes, right? And sort of deluged this app with notifications or the users of the app of, with notifications of you know, incoming rocket strikes, a potential nuclear bomb. There was a warning of a nuclear bomb being... Uh, being launched against against Israel on this on this app. To your point of these attacks trying to generate fear and the perception of these hackers having influence, this is kind of part and parcel of, of that type of trend. Um, and we more recently we've seen claims that pro Palestinian 
hackers have gone after an airbase in Israel. Tell us a little bit more about these claims, which might have some credence to them, but remain unconfirmed. Right. So, and that's the key point, right? These are unconfirmed reports, but uh, a group, a pro-Palestinian group, and I won't say their name because they're trying to get their name out there, but um, this group is saying that they targeted smart devices and cameras around a key military installation in southern Israel that is is sort of plays host to international military support. I mean, the American military support has been there for a long time. And also this, as part of this conflict, that's where deliveries are coming in, that, those sorts of things. This group said they were able to both obtain data on pilots and other base personnel and their families, but also um, the camera systems around the base and in the area. And, you know, they have images of, of people um, taken from the cameras, essentially. And they shared what they said were sort of both screenshots and also, you know, recordings of captured live video feeds showing people driving through gates, um, you know, license plate numbers. They're really trying to demonstrate, hey, we see you. And, you know, explicitly they said on one of the messages, you are not safe. So both an implicit and explicit threat of violence. And these are kinds of an example of where those sort of low level or very sort of spotty reports that we heard early on sort of give way to stuff that's more serious and definitely much more along the lines of stuff that should be paid attention to. Yeah. I mean, we, this is something that we, we have to evaluate constantly in our reporting in terms of, you know, what to pay attention to, what to talk about and what to ignore. We chose to cover this group and, and describe what they're up to, despite the fact that we can't confirm whether this took place or not. Kind of talk us through that decision a bit. Why is this something that's, that's worth paying attention to? You know, it's such a hard balance because a, a, an explicit part of what these groups are trying to do is get attention and have folks like us say, oh, look at this big, strong, powerful group and what they're doing. You know, there's no shortage of accounts on X, you know, formerly Twitter and other places saying like updating by the minute of every claim of different hacks or oh, this website's down, or they say they're in this water treatment plant, these kinds of things, you know, that, that sort of re reporting is very irresponsible because it doesn't really contextualize the seriousness of it or the validity of it, the credibility. So we we're constantly sort of wading through all of this, like every day, all day, I'm sort of in these spaces, seeing what they're saying and trying to evaluate whether to raise it to you and, and whether we ultimately put it in a story. In this case, the group offered some specifics that sort of hint at a little bit more credibility. Um, they talked about exfiltrating a large amount of data. And then you have the screenshots and the video feeds that have, that are time stamped that show specific locations. You know, these are things that can be checked and verified and it's sort of communicating that there are some indicators here that would suggest that this is, elevating in a way that's quite concerning. And then against that, you know, that ongoing backdrop, there is a, a flurry of existing state-aligned groups that already 
operate in this space and have been for years for various purposes, you know, cyber espionage, data theft, um, you know, messaging, hack and leak operations. These It's a quite fertile area for stuff like this. You know, the Iran-Israel context is quite hot in this sense. It's it's an ongoing battle in that space. Yeah, And these groups are just... You know, we had an expert tell us that, you know, as this sort of drags on, these groups that were already existing are going to find ways to insert themselves or, you know, manifest into that dynamic to their ends. And so it's, it's definitely worth paying attention to. Right. Yeah. So I, I want to get into that point a little bit more about looking forward as the as the conflict drags on. We're in this interesting moment right now where Israel is continuing to carry out strikes against Hamas. Rockets are continuing to be fired. There might be a ground offensive in Gaza, which has the potential of widening this conflict uh, to the region, which might you know, result in other states, other militant groups launching attacks. And as the conflict broadens, there's a risk that you know, we might see more activity in cyberspace, more operations in cyberspace carried out. Talk us through a little bit like what experts in the field, researchers are saying about what we can expect or should expect as the conflict continues. Well, certainly experts are expecting the information operations, which we're kind of describing here to intensify and to be ongoing. I mean, in some ways that these are messages both intended for the public consumption, you know, to either terrorize domestic populations, to uh, communicate threats explicitly, but also experts sort of have said over the years and that these are operations where, uh, state entities are communicating with each other. Uh, they're communicating access. They're communicating, they're sort of threatening each other. Hey, Hey, we're, we see X, we can do Y, you know, back off type of thing. Or, you know, if you want to keep, um, going here, we can keep going too. Uh, the way that these groups are talking to each other shouldn't be lost on us too. Although that's much harder to see and quantify for the non sort of Intel world folks, but there's a, there's kind of a, a multi-layered dance going on in that sense. And as this goes on, these types of messages will become public and will be sort of obvious to some of us that are paying attention day in, day out that, the potential for damage is real. I mean, we mentioned in the story this week that, you know, Iranian linked groups in the past have gone after Israeli targets in a, in a way that really has terrorized civilians. They've gone after, for instance, a uh, gay dating service and released everybody's profile. Um, that data included very sensitive information in, about things like sexual orientation or medical status details that people probably wouldn't want private or public. Um, then on the flip side, we have examples in the past of operations suspected of being linked with Israel going after, you know, physical systems in Iran, uh, you know, fuel distribution systems, um, uh, steel facility, production facilities. So there's a lot of things that can happen and this can get really serious really quickly. So it's kind of a, complicated space that needs to be monitored. And especially as these threats include, uh, you know, it's bad enough on its own, right? But 
then you have more and more threats of violence and other things towards Americans uh, as American gets pulled more into the situation. So we've seen some indications of that, but it's very early in that process. All right, AJ, thank you so much for your reporting. And we'll be talking about this much more, I think, uh, uh, in coming weeks, unfortunately. One of the interesting dynamics of the the conflict is the way that it's playing out online and the, the information space. And one of the key avenues where that is playing out is on Twitter, now known as X, which has fundamentally changed since Elon Musk acquired the platform. And coming up next on the show, we have an interview with Mike Caulfield, a researcher at the University of Washington, who studied the way that the platform has changed and how the flows of information on that platform has changed following Musk's takeover and how a group of, frankly, quite unknown accounts now have far greater reach on the platform than mainstream news outlets. That's up next on Safe. When Hamas launched its attacks on Israel on October 7th, anyone trying to follow the conflict on what was once known as Twitter and is now called X encountered a very different platform. Since its founding in 2006, Twitter has emerged as a key venue for understanding rapidly evolving crises. It's where we've turned to understand events of the Arab Spring, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and now fighting between Israel and Hamas. But the current round of fighting and how it is being depicted on Twitter is different in one key respect. It's the first time the platform is being used in the context of a major crisis after Elon Musk acquired it. To understand how the platform has changed under Elon's stewardship, I'm joined today by Mike Caulfield, a research scientist leading rapid response efforts at the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. Mike Caulfield, welcome to Safe Mode. Yeah, great to be here. So, Mike, you've just published a study on how information related to fighting between Israel and Hamas is being consumed on Twitter. You describe the emergence of a new elite on the platform that's eclipsing the reach of major news outlets. Who is this new elite? Yeah. So to give some context, uh, uh, we looked at, for first, let me define elites. Elites is not really a normative term that we're using here. Some people think elite means means good. Of course, that's, that's not the case. Elites just mean people that have a disproportional influence on what people see, hear, think, do, right? And so if you think of media elites, uh, media elites are people that have a disproportionate influence on what people see when they, when they consume uh, media. In the case of Twitter, uh, what we found was a group of, uh, we identified seven people. Uh, who were responsible over the course of three days for um, about 1.7 billion views on Twitter, which is quite a lot. Uh, when we looked at the, um, the performance of more traditional news organizations, uh, we found that those, those organizations lumped all together, about the same uh, a group of organizations, uh, produced something uh, around in between 100 and 200 million views. So you have, you have a very wide disparity there, uh, really an order of magnitude uh, disparity between things like BBC World uh, and some of these uh, uh, relatively new accounts, uh, which are dominating the news that you see on that, on that platform. Right. So I think for anyone who's tried to use the platform to follow the conflict, 
it seems as if everyone on Twitter now is a so-called OSINT expert and is yeah. <laughs> spre- and is you know republishing videos that they've seen somewhere on the internet, and maybe sometimes they've tried to verify them a bit, and, but very often there seems to be very little verification work being done. And the accounts that you describe in your report as having reached 1.6 or having accumulated 1.6 billion views, a lot of these accounts they fall in that category of so-called OSINT accounts of spreading raw material about the conflict. Kind of talk us through a little bit, what type of material are we seeing from these accounts that are kind of like dominating the conversation on Twitter and in key respects? Yeah, you're you're seeing everything. You're seeing a a real mix of things that's kind of coming to you all at once. And so one of the big things that you're seeing is a lot of decontextualized video. There's a video uh, that's that's presumably uh, from somewhere in Gaza or somewhere in um, uh, you know somewhere somewhere else in Israel. Uh, and that uh, video is being shared to you, whether it's of a, a bombing or whether it's of uh, some other atrocity or a statement uh, from an official. Uh, it's not necessarily that these videos are false. It's just that. There's a video there. You have no idea where it came from. You have no idea who put it together. You have no idea who decided where it stopped and where it started. Uh, so there are these decontextualized uh, um, uh, videos, uh, decontextualized images. Uh, another thing that you see with these accounts is, uh, you know, very often the, the accounts will phrase something, uh, say something like, um, uh, you know, uh, something like, I just want to be clear when I'm saying it, like an example of something they might say would be, you know, uh, breaking, you know, sources in Israel, say, invasion that begin in three days or something like that. And that's all you get, right? You don't get yeah. a link to, you know, Reuters or something uh, like that. Some of the accounts do make a better effort to show their sources. Uh, so the... Um, the account that's run by um, the account named Mario Noffel, but that is run by a group of people uh, under Mario Noffel, will often mention the news source. They'll say, you know, they'll say Reuters or Al Jazeera or something like that, but they'll provide no link, right, to the to the news source. So you can't actually go and see if what they're giving you is is a good summary of uh, what they're doing. And I think I think your your point here is one that I. Uh, in the in the coverage of our report, I, I haven't seen many people pick up on, but it, it is I think I think it is something that that we noted is that there is this sort of the presentation is this sort of for many of these accounts is this is this sort of ethos of open source investigations the sort sort of things that were really you know, pioneered by groups like Bellingcat and and uh, so forth these ideas that. You know, you can go on the internet, you can pull together a lot of sources and you can kind of create something that provides perspective and, and, and uh, context for a reader. But that's where the comparison stops with a lot of these things. If you look at something like Bellingcat uh, or you look at uh, some of the other open source investigations, these are things where they try to pull together a lot of data points. They do a lot of work of verification. They do consult outside sources, outside experts, and they try to pull that together into a package, whereas this is just a a constant flow, a constant stream of updates, videos, photos, you know, oftentimes as much as a hundred of these a day from a single account. Yeah. The volume from these groups is, is one of the, I think, striking aspects of them where they're, you know, not only are they reaching huge audiences, right? They're also 
they're also posting far more than you know, traditional news accounts are. And they're really flooding the zone with a lot of this material. I'm wondering if you would consider these accounts to be, do you think they're culpable in, in, in spreading misinformation? One of the you know, pervasive unconfirmed reports in trying to cover this conflict, right, was that Hamas fighters beheaded Israeli children when they first attacked Israel on October 7th. And it seemed like these accounts have had some role in in spreading those reports, which remain so, unconfirmed. I'm curious if you can kind of yeah. talk through, like, are they, do you, do you see them as being culprits in spreading misinformation? So we, in the report, we sort of tried to stay away from the, the term misinformation, tried to focus on the, the greater issue of news quality. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, what, what I'll say here is that the fast pace that, that these people engage at creates a sort of pressure. And I, I think understanding the larger dynamics of that is something that's going to be a, a bigger project. Uh, so mm. it's we're looking at a conflict where, um, you know, the, the the traditional press hasn't always covered itself in glory either with the way. No, absolutely not. Yeah. But I think one of the things that we're seeing is there's a dynamic where uh, here, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened after we, after we published this, um, uh, a bunch of people uh, commented uh, on Twitter, you know, Oh, so I guess, um, uh, so, so you're, so you're, you're complaining about these people. And meanwhile, you know, the New York times said that, um, uh, a hospital was bombed by Israel. And then this was sort of the repeated thing throughout this. And, and the assumption of people there was, well, these accounts can't possibly have reported that Israel uh, targeted a hospital. And the truth is, these accounts did, right? Not all of them. All the no. accounts were very various, right? Some reported, you know, sort of both sides, some reported a, a piece of this. But numerous accounts in this set, trying to remember the exact number, but I'll, I'll be careful and just say numerous accounts in the set, not only reported that bombing, but they were among the first big accounts to report that bombing and attribute it to Israel, right? And so there's, there's a piece of this, which I think is, I'm not even sure it's about the, the specific misinformation that they spread, because of course, we don't know in the, in the, in the, the, you know, hours or sometimes even days after one of these events, what the truth of that event is. But I do think that there's something going on here where it creates a certain pressure all the way up the chain uh, so that you're looking at this stuff, which is unconfirmed and just spreading like wildfire on uh, on Twitter. Uh, and then what you're seeing is, I think, in some cases, the media organizations are reacting to that, uh, and I think in many cases reacting poorly. I know I know that's somewhat of a complex a answer, but I I think that the thing I'm thinking more about is not necessarily specific pieces of misinformation from these accounts. We all get things wrong, okay. especially in a situation like this. It's it's very common to get things wrong, but the way they exert pressure on the the news system as a whole, I think. I think is probably not not healthy for for any news. Yeah. So, what are the changes that that Elon Elon Musk has instituted that, that's driving the changes that's giving these sets of accounts this huge platform, you know, eclipsing news organizations like BBC, yeah. CNN, New York Times. Yeah. And so we can't we haven't quantified these things, right? And so a lot of this a lot of this is, you know, is, is just our own you know inference. But uh, we do see that even the um, 
people that run these accounts themselves have talked about why they post the way they do. There's an mm. excellent story in Gizmodo uh, yesterday where the author of that story reached out and talked to two of the people that run the accounts. And what those people said was, look, we understand we don't link in linking. Not linking is good. Uh, it's not good, right? We they want to link, but the algorithm punishes links to outside content, right? And and so if we if we start linking stuff, especially in a first tweet, um, you know that's going to demote. Uh, that's going to that's going to um, prevent our stuff from from getting to our audience. And so that's one of the things. One of the biggest things is probably the demotion of external links. And so the motion of external links happened in a couple ways. Uh, one, you know, one most visible is the change in those uh, those Twitter cards. They used to actually have like, um, if you link to something, you had a, like a specialized piece of interface that had a picture, it had a headline, it had like a little uh, um, summary of the, of the article. Uh, now you just get a big picture in like a domain name on it. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's not very informative. Uh, and so you can't really look at that card and make a quick judgment about, oh, okay, like, what's this article about? Like, who's it from? Um, it's just not as scannable uh, as, as, it, as it used to be. Uh, so that's, that's one of them. Uh, but also there, there seems to be, again, a lot of this is in the dark. There seems to be an algorithmic um, demotion of uh, uh, links of, of first tweets in a series that have a link to X outside content. Uh, and that seems to have been uh, confirmed by Musk in some other other statements um, as something that he sees as as good. That he doesn't want people going to outside sources. He wants people to do all their information work in Twitter. Right. Uh, um, I'm sorry, in X. Um, and so, uh, and so I think those are those are two two important things. But there's some other things as well, right? Like uh, it used to be you used to have trending topics, and when you had trending topics. One of the things that was happening was that um, uh, trending topics would often push out corrections. They push push out, you know, uh, fact checks and things like that, you know, uh, and let people know, hey, something you saw may have not been right. Uh, there used to be labeling on tweets, and so labeling wasn't a perfect mechanism. But uh, people often, I think, underestimate the effect of labeling. It's true for someone that just didn't care. They didn't really care about being labeled, but I think actually these folks actually do care, right? They're they're actually big, sort of at this point. They're sort of big operations. They get a lot of views, right? This is this is what they do. Uh, you can tell us what they do because they do it a hundred times a day, right? Um, and so, um, for people that do that, for people that that are invested in that, yeah, they, they'd rather not get labeled, right? Um, your uncle, maybe he doesn't care, but a, a place is one of these news aggregator stuff. And the labeling has gone away, right? Now it's community notes. And community notes has this issue where, uh, and there's some recent work out on this, um, where uh, it labels, uh, it will label a tweet based on this community feedback. But the process is so slow of getting uh, that tweet published, that, uh, sorry, that note published, that very often by the time that note is published, it's, it's days later and people have moved on. And Elon is also interacting with a lot of these accounts on a, on a, on a personal level, right? And, and it seems like that might also be privileging these accounts yeah, it's in a, the Twitter algorithm, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag on, on, on that, but there's absolutely some accounts in the set that, that have been boosted and maybe even 
where the popularity has been created um, uh, by uh, Elon spotlighting uh, these, these accounts. Uh, um, you know, it, what, one example is um, is a person in our set uh, named uh, Colin Rugg. Um, and if you don't remember that name uh, and you've been on Twitter, you might remember that when Musk fired like 75% of his software uh, team, uh, there was one person uh, that had a tweet that's like, well, I, I, you know, given that Twitter's still up and running, you know, given that Twitter's still working fine, I'm wondering what that 75% did. Uh, and that person was sort of roundly uh, mocked on, on, on Twitter, uh, but also re retweeted by a lot of people who thought that, that was um, a, a, a smart comment. Mm. And, um, and that comment was replied uh, to by Musk himself. And then subsequently, uh, Musk replied to a lot of uh, comments of this, uh, uh, of this individual. Um, and it, it, when you look at that, when you see that when Musk replies to something, it boosts that to like millions of people, millions of people suddenly see it. If, if Musk replies to your tweet, millions of people suddenly see your tweet. And so I think when you look at that and when you look at the fact that a lot of these accounts had numbers uh, of followers that were, you know, somewhere in the tens of thousands uh, and now are, you know, trending up towards a million. Um, uh, I, causality is hard, um, but for some of these accounts, at least, uh, that has to be the case. For other accounts, I, you know, it, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, there's an account in our set named Spectator Index that has sort of slowly climbed to prominence over many years uh, and is in many ways sort of the grandfather of this, this sort of approach, uh, you know, sort of non-linked, non, uh, you know, non-linked or unsourced content um, that's kind of kind of presented uh, um, tweeting multiple times a day. I think maybe uh, again because there's such an interplay between the algorithm and the individuals here. Uh, maybe one of the early people to figure out a Twitter algorithm that even before Musk did have, uh, I think, some issues. When we kind of hone in on some of these accounts and look at them more closely, are, are there any? In particular, that that stand out to you as, as interesting, that kind of illustrate the dynamic here with with, with what's happening with these OSINT posters, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm honestly I'm interested in the similarities and the variety of these accounts, and so I you know I think one of the accounts that that's very interesting is this this Mario Noffel uh, account, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing his, his name correctly. Um, but this is a person who uh, gained some notoriety on, on a platform called Clubhouse, uh, sort of provided these um, sort of uh, provided these audio events where you had multiple people on a panel talking in an audience and so forth. And his his um, his sort of role there in the Clubhouse stuff and later on X uh was as the facilitator right he was the facilitator of these audio events and you see that very much in his style of posting right he's a person who i think you could say does not have a specific political agenda uh at all um but he's pulling from accounts like uh scent defender and uh, uh war monitors and so forth he's pulling from all of these accounts uh, in sort of feeding the stream 
with uh, just really being an aggregator for this stuff. Uh, and so, and so that that's an interesting account in that it, again, it's not pursuing an agenda, but it's sort of this meta account that's pulling from all these these different people uh, that um, that are are posting. In many cases, pulling from those seven, right? And so becoming sort of a hub for that uh, for that information. On the other hand, you have people that I think are pursuing very um, uh, specific political uh, ideologies, and I'm not going to ascribe too much intent uh, to um, uh, to those to those accounts. But you know, if you go through the accounts, there are some accounts in there that are very um, uh, pro-Palestinian. There are some accounts that are very uh, pro-Israel, um, and Again, I think one of the things that struck us about this set, and they talk to each other sometimes, sometimes they yell at each other. Like, uh, you know, sometimes I was watching, I think it was the War Monitors account complaining that Scent Defender, the Scent Defender account was getting things wrong and saying something, <laughs> something, uh, um, the, Scent Defend, the Scent Defender account was saying, well, you know, you know, you don't have to be a mouthpiece for Hezbollah. And the War Monitors account was replying something along the lines of, "Hey, you know, I hope things are good in Ohio." Uh, so, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. It's it's there, but they, you know, they they they're um, they're it's it's not as if there's sort of some dominant movement here on Twitter. It's really mm. about the style, and they know each other, and they know that they're competitors, uh, and they know that they're linked by this uh, by this style, and they. Uh, in some cases, argue with one another as war monitors and scent defender. In some cases, they pull from multiple ones, as as Mario Noffel, the Mario Noffel account pulls from uh, um, a lot of people in this set. Um, in some cases, they're a little bit apart. Uh, the the vice grad uh, account uh, is a little bit older. It came to prominence probably not through Musk, probably uh, um, uh, mostly through its uh, coverage of uh, Ukraine. Uh, in the early days of Ukraine, uh, and again that sort of that sort of open source investigation, uh, where where people became first uh, introduced to that, a lot of people, and uh, and it's kind of a part. It it doesn't really it doesn't really interact with the others. So yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You asked me about a specific account, but I, I I think the the most interesting thing to me about the accounts is that they're united by not ideology but by the algorithm. They hmm. are formed uh, really very specifically around what that Twitter algorithm does and about how, if you want to get your stuff out, uh, what you do to please it. If we step back a bit and compare this conflict to maybe like the most recent crisis moment on Twitter, which for me would be the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how do you compare the functioning of Twitter in this crisis versus what happened with the invasion of Ukraine, similar to what happened with Israel-Gaza, unexpected, rapid military action, captures yeah. the public imagination, intense amounts of media content. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing to say is we, we would love to do direct quantitative comparisons, but we no longer have access to a, a set of tools uh, referred to uh, as the academic API uh, that we used to use to, to um to do this sort of research. Those tools, uh, the, the academic versions of those tools were um, shut down by, by uh, Musk in the spring. Uh, and so we can't really go back and do direct quantitative comparisons. 
however, we did look at things at the time in Ukraine. We were we were actively looking at things uh, in Ukraine, following some of these things. So, so what I what I can do here is I can speak from the experience of looking at both of these. But I, I want to be clear: I'm not necessarily making quantitative comparisons. What we saw repeatedly in Ukraine was that there was a lot of garbage circulating around. Uh, there was a lot of unsourced stuff that turned out to be, you know, true, but just was unsourced and you didn't know that a lot of that was circulating around. Uh, but it was sort of pillowed uh, in this larger media environment where you were also seeing, you know, on the stuff from on the ground reporters. You're seeing stuff from uh, some of the news agencies, press outlets and, and so forth. And uh, when you looked at that as a whole, um, it wasn't perfect, but it, but it was a mix, right? It was a mix. You had, you had a mix of this sort of fast-breaking, untrustworthy stuff, and you had, on the other side of that, you had a bunch of stuff that was maybe a little slower, but it was more reliable. Uh, and in general, I think people were getting a good uh, view of that, of that war, even despite some of the other stuff. Now, this conflict's a little different in a number of ways. The, the attack on Israel is, is not ambiguous at all. It's horrendous. Uh, it's, it's, it's inhumane. It, it, it is an atrocity. I want to be clear about that. But as we move to what should Israel's response be, you know, the news environment is a little more ambiguous than it ever was in Ukraine, where the simple answer to, like, how do you solve a problem like Ukraine is Russia should leave, right? Um, whereas this, this is, this, there's some ambiguity when it comes to Israel's response. And ambiguity is is opportunity for a lot of this stuff, right? So that so there is that. I don't want to I don't want to diminish that. But the big thing, and this is why we we structured the report the way we did, the big thing is is not that these accounts are doing very well, but that we just aren't seeing that traditional news at all. Now there's some other things we could look at. We could look at Sometimes individual reporters and their accounts do better. We looked at institutional accounts. Uh, and so we could go back and we could look at uh, individual reporters, et cetera. But I'll tell you that very few of them made the hundred, the list of the top 100 we looked at, even if we were to go down very low on that list. Uh, we had a couple media personalities that maybe showed up uh, in the 20s or something. I think uh, Mehdi Hassan uh, showed up somewhere in the 20s in our thing, uh, but that was like one of the first, that's one of the first media personalities uh, that we saw uh, in our list. And so what we're seeing right now is we're seeing, um, we're seeing the sort of stuff that we um, saw in Ukraine, because a lot of this stuff in this sort of hosting ethos was there, but we're seeing it without, we're seeing it without this, this the, the complementary stuff of these, um, of these more state accounts and the way I might, you know, it, it's, it's almost sort of like, ah, I was going to compare it to an invasive species. Maybe that, maybe that's too, too harsh. And, and too <laughs> but this, there's, there's a, it feels like that, right? It, it feels it like, it, it feels does. like things were like in a sort of tension and the tension was okay. The truth is a lot of people on Twitter do like to see the occasional rumor. They do like to see the occasional uh, unsourced video. Like I, 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 I thoroughly admit that that is one reason why people come to Twitter. They'd like to see something from the ground and they'd like to see something from the news desk. And the, 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 I think the attraction of Twitter in the past has been that you get both. And this is, goes back even back to Ferguson, right? If you look at, if you look at uh, the, the Ferguson protests, 
back in, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think 2014, is that right? If you look at the Ferguson protests, you were getting the news coverage of Ferguson, then you were getting the story from the people on the ground, and people enjoyed getting both sides of that, but the, the news side was adding context to what you were seeing here. It's just increasingly become uh, nothing but this sort of decontextualized stream of, of rumor video and and uh, other media. And I, I think that that, if you're feeling a little stressed on Twitter these days, I'm sorry, on, on X these days, it, it, that might have something to do with it. Well, Mike, thanks so much for your great work on this. I think that's a great note to end on. And uh, for folks who are feeling confused about what they're seeing on the internet these days, know you're not alone. Get in touch with Mike. He can help you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.